Okay, before we start, well, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have Diane make an announcement to our Bible study. Let's pray. Bless the Lord has cost all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. So today is going to make an announcement for us. Good morning, everyone online and, and present. Uh, next week, we are finishing up the study of John, and so we thought we'd have a little celebration and um, have a lunch here at the church in the St. Barnabas Pavilion. We thought it'd be simpler than trying to go over there and organize, organize a table somewhere else. So I'm going to make a, a big salad, and on top of the bit of greens, we'll have Chicken salad on top of that, some bread, some cookies, and we keep it simple, but it will be a time of fellowship for all of us to celebrate um, the end of an entire book in the Bible, and that uh, for a time for us to just be together. So if you can come next week for Mass at 9.30, or if that doesn't work, you can come to 30 Bible study and then join us immediately after that for lunch here on the pavilion. And so... Um, Great. Thank you for organizing that. Uh, and uh, it's great. Yeah, we'll hang out casually after we study. A little word of God, then a little you know, food of the word, and then a little food. And... Are you going to do regret hearing? I'll bring cookies and dessert. Great. Okay. All right. All right. All right. We're good. It's very simple. All right. Here we are. Now we go Bible study. Hello, everyone. Online friends, Christine, Rhonda, Adriana, Elizabeth, Ruth. Let's see if we have any hiding friends. Um, no, no one's visible. Nice. Um, so we're, we've got... Um, a couple more chapters of John. We, we get to the resurrection today. Uh, there is uh, some, I realize that it's funny when I sent, I made the list for John, like, oh, Lent's way out there. And now a couple more chapters than like Lent. So we do want to think a little bit about what we want to study for Lent. And uh, I don't need an answer today, but uh, if you have inspiration as opposed to um, inspiration be opposed to. I feel like to suggest or have an idea. I'm thinking about it a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I, I will not promise if you suggest that I will do that, but I, I, I will take, I will synthesize and discern with the grace of God what we think we should do. I think we are John again. John again. <laughs> <laughs> 
The only, I mean, if we if we are on John, probably um, you know something like First John, which is all the same themes. I, God forbid that we do Revelation. It just takes a lot of work. If you uh, all you know, you just have to. I just have to co- commit you all to a long time of study if we ever did that. But there's some good things about about Revelation um, in terms of not not thinking we have to do it all by Lent, but it would be uh, um, whether it be the revelation of Jesus and the letters to the churches, which are certainly very Lenten. Uh, so anyway, let me know. We all are going to decide that today. But, um, huh? Yeah, but... It takes a little bit more work, uh, just honestly. Um, what's that? To do it well, because, um, well, even John, um, even the, the Gospels, if you really want to understand them, you have to be at least knowledgeable of, of the Old Testament story, because so many illusions are being made. Um Revelation is verily uh, a continuous tapestry of images from the Old Testament. And if you're not aware of where they come from, it's where prophecy teachers run amok because they they try to create an image out of whole they they think the image created a whole cloth and it's not. It comes. They're all it's and it it makes revelation not nearly as mysterious as some make it to be. But it does make it highly symbolic, and 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 has a lot of illusions in there. And and the kind of teaching you get from a symbol is more contemplative than it is. Um, you know, you you prove a point. You see an image. Maybe that would be an idea for a study. We, yeah, we we could pursue some symbolism. It would certainly be that that would. So if 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 I, I just um, you know, may, or maybe it's just me. I need to be more patient at the pace, <laughs> you know, where we can just kind of walk through. But I'm I'm um, because you know, for example, if we wanted to, you know, we yeah, okay, well, let's think about that. So let me know if that sounds good awesome. to the Holy Spirit and to us. We can. Yeah, and I, you just prayed in the blessing. You said that it stuck out to me. It's like through patience, these scriptures. Patience, yeah, yeah. That that really stood out to me today. Well, I'll never. I mean, I, I it's probably my my favorite book of the Bible. So I don't mind spending a lot of time in it. I just what's typically the problem with it is simply that people um, either because they're they're into radio Bible prophecy. And they think when I get, we're going to study and tell them when the world's coming to an end or what this thing means, then they get disappointed because it takes more work than that. Uh, or on the other hand, it's just like talking about. But but I, I, I think the if we have a little patience with it, I'd actually have a lot of fun with that. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I could. Those are blessed if you read it. So we're at least blessed for showing up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so good. For me, it tied the whole Bible together when we started it. Well, and one of the things that I will, I mean, I, I will I will declare myself, as I have often, that I, I believe pretty strongly that Revelation, at least in the first instance, 
is dealing with um, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And um, when we begin to actually pay attention to the symbolism. Now, just as the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a day of the Lord, which paralleled the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in, at the end of the Old Testament, and probably prefigures something about the judgment to come on the entire world. It's not like it, it's there are biblical themes that that, that that come along, but but it's it. I know there's a lot of opinions about Revelation, but I think if you take it at face value and the symbols clearly, there are certain things that that make that point at least on one level to me very strong, and it sticks into John because as 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 um, as you were, as Diane so, so rightly pointed out last week, we were talking about the passion narrative. You, the, in John, the people aren't so much involved. It's the Jews. It's these leaders who are culpable and guilty for this. And this is a theme of the New Testament in general, because because Jesus said Jesus said um, uh, that 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 the all of the righteous blood ever shed would come on this generation. So the idea that you have you have a judgment and so anyway, I, I, that's just a but but even doing that, it's not just an historical study about what happened, but what was characteristically the error of his old covenant people. And then we get into the letters to the churches where there's illusions of problems with the new covenant people. To the letter, you know, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? You know, you're doing some good things, but hey, I got a couple things against you. <laughs> and then, so that, so okay, so yeah, wow, that's good. That would be that would be actually kind of fun. Good. Well, let's get into John now and 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 the resurrection. Um, so our chronology of of Holy Week again, and just to understand our time is that. No, uh, it's first of all a week, and I want I, it's very, very important to understand what happens during Holy Week as a Sunday through Saturday reality. Day one through seven, God made the world in seven in six days and rested on the seventh. He worked therefore Sunday through Friday and rested on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the first day of the week. And um, the words that we got on the cross in John 19 were, it is finished. And what is finished theologically is the work of the new creation. It's, 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 a, it's a highly symbolic and real meaning. So we talk about, we have a hymn that says, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. But all this new creation imagery is rooted in the idea that the New Testament is a fulfillment and, and follows the pattern of the old creation. God in Genesis um, spoke and the spirit of God moved over the waters. That's how creation happened. So in the New Testament, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, God spoke. 
we're going to see in the resurrection narratives, he's going to breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. Clear allusion to Genesis 2. God took dust from the ground and breathed. So, so the same thing is happening. And so therefore, uh, where we get to the resurrection here is Jesus finished work on Friday. He rested on the Sabbath. Now we're to the sun, we're, the, we're day one again, which is also in Jewish theology, day eight. The, 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 the moving beyond the limitations of the old creation into the horizon of new creation. And so this is, this is therefore, the first day of the new week of the new creation. What makes it new? Christ is risen. Man, Adam, the new man, the old Adam died and, and sinned, sinned and created a barrier from God that, that was death. Now the new Adam has fulfilled the covenant which answers the problem of sin. He's risen from the dead and now he's the new man. This is the, and so the new man existing we'll see in a garden on the first day of the new week, the new creation. Encountering, we're going to see in John, a woman. And the image of Mary Magdalene, it, there, there's a kind of parallel or complementary image of Magdalene and the mother of God. One is, is you know, of one is a redeemed image and one is, a, you know, a, a, but, but still the same. All these things, they're, they're not lost on John who's writing this narrative. Which began in Genesis and and is going to stay in Genesis to the end. It began as a com. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Is a commentary on Genesis one. In the beginning, God. Now we're going to get to Genesis here and how this answers the narrative of Genesis three, where man was kicked out of the garden because. And, and the access to the tree of life was cut off. All right, with all that, let's jump in and talk about the story itself. Now, on the first day of the week, and this is why we worship on Sunday, it's the, always the first day when we, when we meet, gather to celebrate the Eucharist, to receive Christ, to rise again with him, we're always entering into the new week of the new creation through the resurrection. And there's no other way to enter into it. Now, on the first day, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the other Gospels mention other women, and it's implied from John's narrative that there are other women there, too. But John, for his purposes, is focusing on one woman. But to say that Mary Magdalene went doesn't mean that Others didn't go with her. It just means we're telling a certain story here. Um, one, one thing that I just feel compelled to share is I visited Mary Magdalene's tomb in Ephesus. And when I went there, the only people who were there were um, these two girls and a boy, child. Two girls and a boy. And it, the story goes that John went with Mary, the mother of Christ, and Mary Magdalene to Ephesus. So I visited Mary's house too. There were two girls and a boy. They were little, and they were holding a baby. And I was like, uh, can I take your picture? Because I was like, that's Mary and Mary and John. And it was just like the Holy Spirit revealed that to me for whatever reason. But like, 
it's so amazing how God arranges these things. And John's focusing on it because, you know, I don't know. I don't know all the rest of the mystery, but I had to share that part. Still working in these mysterious ways and like that they're in a garden and that how could this all happen for real? Because people are like, oh, that's just a story. It's like, no, it also happened for real, you know? So the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. By the dawn, into dawn. Saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The tomb was open. Then she, and, and you know, people make the point that you know, Jesus, because he's got to go through a door later on, didn't need the stone removed. But the purpose of the stone removed is to be to see he's not there. But thought they'd get him out. <laughs> then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It's the implication that they're with women. We, we don't know where they've taken So this is interesting. So this is the first... Um, explanation of Easter is somebody stole the body. Of course, that's um, you know, you know, so that that, that we, no one, but but they they didn't yet understand what this meant, even though Jesus had had some prophecies about it. So Peter hearing that, oh, they, they, they stole the body, you know, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. I love this detail. And the other disciple outran Peter, came to the tomb first. <laughs> yeah, I won. Yeah, yeah, I won. Yeah. Who's the other disciple? John. I mean, by tradition, it's John. The other disciple, the beloved disciple, the unnamed <laughs> younger bastard. I'm bastard, <laughs> Now, um, so so we're, we're going to get a story that that touches on um, how we come to understand the revelation, and we're going to see. Um, Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8 all have the word saw in it. But each time that word saw translates a different word in Greek that progresses from I looked at, I kind of tried to check it out, and the, the saw, which is I understand. Do we get that in our own language where, like, you know, did, did you see that? Oh, yeah, the bird up there. Or, or, or you can say, well, do you understand? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see, I, I grasp. And so we have a progression here. Um, so John, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. So he, he just looked at the evidence. Again, there's a cloth, no Jesus. He's got the basics of it. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And he saw, he, this, this is kind of, it, it's a word from which we get our word theory from. But you got to be careful with this, because you can't say because our word theory comes from it, that that meant, 
but it has the sense of trying to check out, okay, what, you know, a little more curiosity about the evidence. So you saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded together in place by itself. It suggests that it's kind of like linen cloths, handkerchief around his neck, just kind of a folded as though the body had passed through them, they'd just kind of fallen down on whatever this flat surface was. So it's not as though he'd gotten up and undressed. I think that's the idea here. And he's trying to figure out what that means. That's that. The body, they're not going to be that stuff. Right, that's right. If you steal the body, you wouldn't undress it. So that would be that. That that's it. That's a, a good point there. Want some more stuff? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of theories about that. You know, uh, I you know I've never been. Um, it's never intrigued me enough to look into it because to me, it, I mean, the, those kinds of things are like, you know, my faith in the resurrection doesn't, doesn't depend upon the belief that they, the napkin they found four, four centuries later is somewhere and as these things is why I think there's always a kind of balance with the relic kind of thing. It's, you know, if you have something that's really related to a holy place, there's a, a significance to the historical connection, but you know, it's really the risen Christ we're believing in. So it's a you can get over involved in in connection to the relic and miss the risen reality. Which isn't to say that historical things don't have a you know an importance, but it, it can become unbalanced. Probably in two ways. I mean, you can act as so history doesn't matter and. You know, we don't care where, you know, so, you know, the, the historicity of it's a significant thing. The sites where it happened are interesting to go to, but, yeah. Verse 8, then the other disciple came to the tomb first, went in also, he saw and believed. And now there's, now he... So he checked it out. Peter went and looked around. John went in. It was like, um, oh, yeah. So John's the first one. John, John portrays himself as the winner of the race to the tomb and the first one to really grasp it. But it, it's sort of like he's probably calling to mind the prophecies. I'm gonna, and he's going, oh, yeah, I get it. Not like... I'm ready to recite the Nicene Creed, but, you know, I understand that this is not, they didn't steal the body. Verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But John knows it. John is the first one to get it. Then their disciples went away to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. 
And as she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. So Mary does not yet believe. Um, and I, I think that there's always been the understanding that Mary Magdalene had a special relationship with Jesus, but it's also, if we're to take, she's, there's, nowhere does the New Testament say that she was a prostitute. It does say she had seven demons cast out of her. And, it's, and so it, it, we can, by inference, assume that she was involved in a manner of life that wasn't very um, reputable, and probably understand that um, her becoming a follower of Jesus reconnected her to, commun- to community in a way that she had been really alienated from. Because a, a demon-possessed woman in that time was not someone who, you know, uh, especially if there had been some, some involvement in that other kind of activity. So I, I think the point is that if Jesus really has just died and gone away, um, everybody's going to be disappointed here, but everyone else has family and jobs. And we're going to see actually part of the implication of this with Peter is going to go fishing. Okay, well, <clears throat> give that to go. I'm going to be a fisher. I, I, we, can all, we can all return to disappointedly, sadly, but we all have a life to go back to. But Mary's like, I don't really have a life to go back to. So she is just weeping in the garden. And she looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So if this is head cloth, body, here's two angels. Now, um, what kind of illusion could we could we draw from this, from Old Testament temple worship? And they were surrounded by by cherubim that overshadow, who are are angelic beings. So here is the place of the presence, and it was the place of the presence, but it's the angels are there in a different, for a different reason, but clearly that imagery, John intends that. Um, Us to be aware of that. Because this would be, let's just be clear, the Ark of the Covenant, that is, the localized, uh, well, he's not there anymore, the body's not here, but the body laying there, the body of Jesus was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the thing that fulfilled all that the Ark of the Covenant spoke of, is, because what was in the Ark of the Covenant, the ten, well, the Ten Commandments mainly, the, the word of God in tablet, this is the word made flesh. The manna, the manna here's the bread of life. So all these images, um, and Aaron's budding rod, the priesthood. So all those things are fulfilled here in that. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? As if they didn't know, but this is, you know, this is the uh, in, in, interrogative way of teaching. You know, think about that a little bit. Um, but it would be like um, the angels know that, 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 the, that the eternal victory has been won. 
it's like, um, you know, people who are fans knowing the game has been won, but somebody missed the ending and got stuck and is all sad thinking they lost, you know, that, that they don't know. Or, or there were images of, you know, where uh, people still involved in late World War II skirmishes didn't know yet that, that things had been, victory had been proclaimed, so they're still thinking. So uh, something like this, it, it's not like, like cheer up, you ought to be, think positive. It's like she doesn't, the reality of the world is that Christ is one. And the, the importance of that perspective really pertains to all of the Christian life because this is what is the ground of Christian joy in the world, is the knowledge that Christ is risen, therefore, the essential victory over sin and death has been won, and we already have it. And all of the contrary evidence, the temporal sadness, if we really grasp, like the angels, the truth of that, that should, that's how joy can, can be present in us in the midst of suffering and pain, because... Um, because we know we know this eternally this eternal reality that's not visible to everyone else. So these angels know a truth, and they're like, "This is great," but from an earthly perspective, a bunch of followers, their their leader was killed, and they're all sad. That's something we should meditate on in our in, in our own reflection in life. That's why in our own prayer we get back in touch with the resurrection. Oh, that's right. God is, Christ is risen through the Holy Spirit. He is with us. Whatever it is we're, we're struggling through, God is working out his purpose in and through. So there should be a fundamental presenting joy in that. And I want to say that that doesn't mean, though, that uh, for us that we should never be sad. Um, because there are real temporal losses that have an appropriate sadness. But like St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he says, I, I don't need a sorrow as those who have no hope. In other words, for example, when someone dies, um, you know, just, oh, we're happy. And sometimes we just, oh, just be happy they're all in heaven. It's like, you know, whoa. You know, we, we were hanging out yesterday, and they're not, they're not here anymore. It's okay to be sad about that. The sadness of the death, though, shouldn't overshadow the overarching hope that we have in Christ of a life that transcends it. So that's how the sadness is okay to mourn those temporal losses. They shouldn't loom larger than the other, and there's a balance between the two. And so it does be even in, 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 in the course of a life each day. We have sad things. Yeah, it made me sad. But we return to our prayer. We always experience it in a real way, but in relationship to the hope that, that transcends it. And we begin to see how God works through those things always. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't think we should have that kind of Hey, always be positive thinking. Like never, never let yourself be touched by sadness. Uh, but on the other hand, we shouldn't be allow ourselves to become depressed and despairing about the trajectory of the world if we really know that Christ is risen.
because we never know what God is doing. That's a lesson for our time when there's a lot of pessimism about the world. But guess what? When I, it's always funny that we look back at history where everyone thought there's the time was the end of the world because it always looked so bad. And you never know what God is doing. It didn't look very good on Good Friday. The future looked grim. Some God was being killed. But that was, so you, that's the hope is we don't know what he's doing. And we can't allow the, the, the sadness and despair of temporal loss to overshadow the trust that God that who, who, who rose from the dead is still um, sovereign over all things. Yeah. So why are you weeping? Because I've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now this is a, a regular phenomenon of the resurrection that people look at Jesus but don't recognize him. And you say, what's the point of this? Well, I think it makes an enduring point. People can look at Jesus and not know him. They can read the scriptures and, and not get it. That to really understand and enter into a relationship with the risen Christ requires some kind of revelation by which we come to know. It's not merely cognitive knowledge, you know, understanding that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. But, but, and, and so when we look at the various resurrection accounts, um, what we'll see are different manners of revelation. And so let's look at this to Mary now. Um, now, when she had said this, she turned around, verse 14, and saw Jesus standing there. That was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And that woman, Mary Magdalene here, I mean, being a woman, of course, but also representing um, the bride of Christ, who he is coming to redeem. And if Mary, mother of God, is, is the faithful, holy mother, who says yes, then Mary Magdalene is the redeemed image of the woman who's been brought out of, of separation into, um, but both are aspects of woman, the bride of Christ, the church. You said woman. Woman. What is the subject? So why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's supposing him to be the gardener. Another interesting, the gardener. And well, he is the gardener. Because Adam was sent to tend the garden. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. So what's the uh, method of revelation here? Called her by name. Did that come up anywhere else in John's gospel? Yeah. About um, the good shepherd calls his sheep by name, and the sheep hear his voice and follow. So recognizing the voice. That, that call of Christ through the Spirit, where we, we recognize. 
which they teach here. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. What's interesting here in that verse 16 to 17 shift is um, Mary is Jesus. Yeah, you go. But it's also this understanding that she, she's going to hold on to him. She's not, he's not getting away again. Yeah. Um, Jesus said, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father. Yep, uh, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Um, this has a little bit to do with some of this, the speech we, we, we read about after the Last Supper and before the crucifixion where Jesus said, it, it's good for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the Comforter will not, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete will not come. So, you know, you could, you know, woman, don't cling to me, you know, get away from me. And it's that kind of thing. It's, it's the manner of my presence with you, which you're accustomed to, is through my ascension going to give way to another mode of presence of the Spirit that is better. Because the ascended Lord above all is ascended above all heavens and sent the Spirit, which can be present everywhere. And through the Spirit, Jesus can be present with this, all of his people everywhere at all time. Whereas the incarnate uh, Son of God before the ascension could only be present in one localized place at any time. And, and so that's the mystery of why, how Christ could be present, you know, with us here and, and Christians in Australia at the same time. And that, 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 so that's why don't, he's not finished yet. He's not, because the resurrection will be completed by the ascension, which will be completed by the sending of the Holy Spirit. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and they had spoken these things. And she's sometimes known as the apostle to the apostles because he appears to her first and they tell him. In the other uh, uh, gospels, too, they don't believe her. They don't believe her? No. And in Mark's gospel, especially in Jesus, upgrades them for, un for their unbelief. John doesn't pick on that point so much. But it's also interesting, you know, who Jesus appears to first. Um, so it, it, it shows his concern, uh, you know, for for the most wounded above the others, uh, and She doesn't really care what anybody thinks about her. She's going to follow Jesus, whatever. I just love 
verse 19, the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So they're afraid of, of um, obviously, so let's just, you know, think about this historically. The Jewish leadership has just succeeded in putting to death a leader of movement. So who would logically be next? You know, the other leaders of the movement, the, 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 the main leaders of the movement, you want to crush the whole thing. So they're, um, and we also want to, although John's gospel itself in, it, in and of itself will not draw this out, um, the juxtaposition of where the disciples are immediately after the resurrection before they receive the Holy Spirit. And then we get to Acts when with the Holy Spirit, they're able to act without fear. They're able to face the threat now, but they're still in that um, pre-resurrected state themselves where they are still fearful still holding on to the to the um you know to in, in a sense to the to their place in the world so the first day of the week doors were shut the fear that where the disciples were assembled fear of the jews jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them peace be with you now so first of all the doors were locked so what we understand here is the resurrection of the body of Jesus is a real body. There are certain things in the New Testament we're told, such as he takes fish and honeycomb and eats it. He says, touch me and see, so he can be touched. Yet the body is in some ways not subject to all the limitations of time and space as a normal body. So... But this is also the resurrected but not yet ascended body. So it'll be interesting when we get to um, Revelation and look at, at Revelation chapter 1. There we have the ascended and glorified. And so it's, there, it, there, there are success, successive, um, he's re, re, being re-endowed with the glory he had from the beginning. And this is the first step of it. So peace be with you. What is the significance of that word in terms of the old covenant? Peace with God. So, and and the 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 point of of this is that that was actually the the peace which which um, came to Israel through the covenant was the consequence of the covenant. That the idea is that there was an estrangement between. God and uh, humanity through sin. Various things, the sacrifice of the animal in the garden that provided the coats of skin to cover the sin, the sacrifice of Abraham, um, that ultimately in the Torah where the sacrifices are established, um, that when these things are done according to the commandment of God and Israel lives faithfully with the covenant, a, a, a relationship of shalom is restored. Apart from that, there is no shalom. And the problem with the old covenant, then we've learned, is that it 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 it, it wasn't it didn't work out. 
because the end of the Old Covenant was Israel in exile in Babylon, coming back, tried to rebuild the temple. They did. They tried, but it wasn't working. They were not living in a, in, in, in a state of... So Jesus, having fulfilled the covenant, having with his own life fulfilled the righteous demands of the Torah, with his death fulfilled the sacrificial offerings of the Torah, now having risen from the dead as the new Adam, is finally one who can say, here is the covenant peace. And that's why the hands inside are the sacrifice of the covenant through which there is peace. And um, this is informs our own Eucharistic celebration where we remember the sacrifice of the covenant. We, you know, offer ourselves to God again in and with Christ. We receive him and the forgiveness of our sins and the renewal of life of the spirit. And then the closing blessing, we have peace. We live, we're now in shalom with God. That the enmity caused by sin, by our own personal disorder, our separation from God and our separation from each other. This is why that you love one another as I have loved you, that there's a horizontal piece that's really important to work for. Because harmony with God, then the, the breach with God in, in the covenant led to the, the, the enmity between people and between people and creation. And now the restoration harmony with God must lead out to this, this other kind of, of shalom, um, which is why it's really, really important for us to, and why Jesus made a pretty big point about it. By this all will know you, you know, this is the new commandment I give you. You love one another because this is, this is the, the implications of the peace. It's interesting in the res, uh, 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 resurrection here, he, um, his hands and his sides, so his body still bears the scars. And um, we went through a long discussion. I don't want to digress on this now. Uh, especially with some women in a previous Bible study who really were not happy with the idea that the <laughs> resurrection body might bear scars. <laughs> but but I think I think metaphorically it doesn't really mean that oh, but our yeah yeah would, would would not be would not be cleaned up for whatever it is that we. But I think what he's talking about here is not so much the cosmetic, vainglorious things you might think about, but that. His defeat on the cross, symbolized by his scars and hands and, and side, have now become emblems of victory because this is what he has overcome. And so I think it means for us that our life stories do not vanish, but, are, but become seen in a completely new light through the res through our own participation in the resurrection, this is what we conquer and what God conquers in us. We are, as um, uh, St. Paul says, more than conquerors for him who loved us. And even St. John says, this is the victory, uh, uh, the, the, the conquest, really, of faith. Is it nothing in the world now that Christ triumphs over it? Sin, death, whatever it is, tragedy. Now that becomes a previous chapter in a story now that is life. Um, 
I want to say something about that, though, that needs a couple more words, because it doesn't mean it's simplistically that way. What I mean, that means like you experience some hard things in life or some, some real pain. And again, just like, um, just like the peace and joy we talked about can coexist with real sadness. So it takes a long time to understand sometimes how the pain we've experienced in life is really being healed and conquered by Christ. And, and, and it's okay for us to work through our healing. It's in the same sort of way. We hold on to Jesus. We let him do his work. As we grow, I think we see it. We see the past in clearer light, but I want to counsel us against the simplistic. He's risen. It's all better, you know, where it's okay, again, still to have some residual pain from our wounds of life that are being healed by Christ. And let's not make the proclamation of healing simplistic or simple. We, we experience a progressive healing in, through, through the life of prayer and faith, in which more and more we see life in the light of the resurrection. And we'll see it most clearly on the day of resurrection. And it deepens us to be with one another in space. So we, with the, with the love that we've got from God and others, we can give to someone else. Especially when we're honest with each other about what we really struggle with. When, when we all together allow Christ to deal with, with, with the, the, the real, I don't mean we have to like tell everything a secret about it. I just mean an essential honesty as opposed to the idea we're, we're pretending it's all better. There has to be place to, for both the, the, the joy, the sorrow and the joy, both the participation in the cross, which is our pain, and the resurrection. And that's why we have a long season of Lent that leads into Easter. So, as the Father has sent me, peace to you, shalom. The covenant's been fulfilled, which is basically what John is saying, what Jesus is saying here in John. Um, and you were in, in, in you. And so the Father has sent me, I am sending you as messengers of this proclamation of covenant fulfillment and peace. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So now that Christ has died and rose, sins can be forgiven. Forgiveness has been won. The apostles are going to go out as heralds of that message. Repent so that you can be forgiven and you can experience shalom. And the authority to forgive is not, it, it, it's, the, it's the authority to proclaim with power what Christ has won. So it won't be an opinion, it's, it's an authoritative pronouncement. Usually in the um, experience of the church, understood, first of all, as experienced in baptism. We believe in one baptism for the remission of sins but continually experience with our ongoing repentance as we're aware of where our lives are amiss. We make our good confession. We experience grace in new ways. We grow continually into that identity that began in baptism. And it looks forward to the horizon of complete cleansing and redemption in the resurrection of being. Huh? 
think those who are not sorry, those who remain willfully disobedient. And therefore, I think, honestly, the way this would be played out is not like they're going around, you're not sorry, you're out, you're in. It would be more in context of the community, so that the Episcopal authority, the earlier church, was largely the authority to admit and bar from communion. So usually sins in the early church were fairly open and notorious, murder, adultery, theft, denial of faith under persecution. And what the bishop would do is he would, if someone was sorry, they'd come back and in the developed discipline of the church, they would be among the penitents for a while to think about the seriousness. And then at some point that bishop, okay, you can come. So you would think of retaining and forgiving in terms of membership in the community, which is exactly Jewish. This is exactly the way the Judaism that's going to kick the Christians out thought about this. Your covenant membership was a communal one. And so participation, I think the way we think about it, is participation in the life of the church. And so if I was going to retain someone's sin, I would say what you're doing is not okay. You can't have too much. I haven't had to do that often in my ministry, but I have done it. Thank you. I mean, yeah, you're highlighting, it's a discipline of revealing sincerity where people don't, but yeah, that's what that is. I think so. I mean, I think in the, you know, the tradition is developed in the church and of course is developed ultimately into, you know, a practice of the sacrament of confession. But I don't think it was ever the intent of our Lord to make it a barrier to forgiveness. So that like somebody who was sincerely sorry and praying can't be forgiven because they didn't, had to find an apostle to say, so I don't think it mitigates against, his is that is an authoritative pronouncement that your sins are forgiven. And the sacrament of confession often works to heighten the experience of that because, you know, there's a certain real reality of confession and witness to the forgiveness. But it doesn't mean that somebody who doesn't do it can't be forgiven. Our tradition doesn't believe that. And very few others could functionally believe that either because there's simply no way that every single sin everyone ever committed, if you have Roman Catholic or Orthodox, everybody went to confession. It's not, I don't think that's the idea. On the other hand, you know, we shouldn't be hostile to the discipline of the church. We should, you know, be willing to be a part of it. But I think it's the proclamation that sins are forgiven. And when people are sorry for the sins and put their faith in Jesus, they experience that. It seems to me too, like in the old covenant, the priest would be the one who would be the one to 
give this to students, it was really a cumbersome experience. You had to do a lot of things in order to that forgiveness and Jesus is Not to belabor the communal dimension, but um, I do think we're also uh, not emphasize enough, do not understand enough in our modern individualistic Western understanding of sin, that sin is also a breach against the unity of the body. And so this is the communal dimension of it is we think it's my personal sin, I can do what I want. I can go to God my personal forgiveness. No, you're a member of a body, the body of Christ. And therefore, just like you can say, if your arm decides to hit somebody wrongly, you can't say, well, the body didn't participate in that. Well, when he hits you back in the face, all of a sudden, you see, it's, it, it has implications. So... Your sin is not simply your individual sin. Our sins are not. It has implications for the body, which is why there's always a, a communal dimension to it. To, and, and, and it's fair to understand that not just the church, even societally, is, is what leads to a lot of error and harm, because it, it simply does affect everything. Verse 24. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, who was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger in the print of his nails, put my hand in the side, he will not believe. So that's the doubting Thomas thing. Um, After eight days, again, the first day of the week. This is a Eucharistic Sunday theme. Disciples went again inside, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So, Thomas, you wanted to, come here, touch. Now, our uh, sister mission up in Fullerton uh, decided to call himself St. Thomas largely because as, as an image of Thomas being more of a, you can take it as like he doubted or he was wanted to see. You know, plus, I knew him, so just, okay, here, see. So you can be a, a seeker also. Who wants to see? And it also shows that God never asks us to believe. Faith is not um, blind or irrational. It, but so God will provide us what we need to believe and then call us to faith. Um, there's still that rev revelatory aspect of it. For for Mary, it was the name Mary. For Thomas, it is touch. You know, and sometimes for a scientist, to, and I think it's epiphanies 
the ways he's revealed this often come in language we're familiar with. We can begin to see something. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because he's not going to make a personal appearance to everyone and say, touch my hands and my side. But he will reveal himself to people in ways that they can understand and call them to faith. And truly many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Very, John's very clear about what he intends to do. I've told you this story so you'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God who fulfills the old covenant and, and that believing you'll have life. Um, we just touched on it briefly in verse 22, but back, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, giving back to Genesis chapter 2, I think it's verse 6, where God uh, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and, and man became a living being. So the image here is a re- very much a resurrection imagery, that here are these dead disciples, unbelieving who don't yet, they're hiding. They represent the old. Jesus comes, proclaims covenant, breathes, and gives them the spirit, and they're raised to new life. They become alive. They become a living being. And so this is very much playing on this imagery. It also would relate to the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 37. The dead body of Israel, the dry bones of the valley, can they live? And, and, uh, and the voice of Ezekiel, breathe on these slain that they may live. So the breathing is that breath of life that brings, you know, in the Holy Spirit that we receive in baptism, in sign of confirmation, and in regularly with the sacrament life of prayer, we receive the Holy Spirit that brings us back to life. All right. Um, it's clear, just a note for next week, that John seems to have intended to end his book there. And not before the era of word processors, you couldn't rearrange it. So he so had to tell one more story so something come up. So we'll look at John 21 next week and, and talk about that. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Did you have all with us? Peace. All of the. Well, I, I think the reality of, of understanding the nuances is, you know, John, <clears throat> like most, you know, reasonably devout New Testament Jews, lived in this story. They went to the synagogue, they read these scriptures, and Jesus is appearing as the fulfillment of it. 
So it's not as though they're having to go read them for the first time. Um, the more we're familiar with the scriptures, the more these sort of allusions and references will become clearer. But the, the, but Jesus is his life is deeply rooted in the biblical story and cannot be understood apart from it, of which he is the fulfillment of it. So. Um, and breathing on him on them also. Well, and I, I would say an example, maybe you know. Uh, a preeminent New Testament example of, of, of this would be St. Paul, who was a Pharisee, was very well versed in the Old Testament narrative, but didn't believe in Jesus as his fulfillment until the revelation on the Damascus Road. And then he began to see it all in a new way. But then St. Paul, all these things begin to make sense to him, all that he knew about the Old Testament. That, and that's why his epistles are also so full of allusions and images of the Old Testament, because he now now he sees. He didn't see before. Um, nobody knows it all, though, because that's what makes the Bible so fun to study, is there's always something new. There's always a new yeah. thing that you didn't see last time. But it would take almost a lifetime. Yes, even he would get it. To see more clearly, I guess the way we look at it is we're growing in our understanding of seeing God. So our vision is growing. And until all of the clouds are parted and all of the interior barriers of sin and temptation are gone, we probably won't see completely clearly. But we're getting it. Interesting. It, it, what's interesting about this, it remind me, if someone sent me, that Father Hayden, we were talking last night in class about contemplation, and he sent me a, a, a stand, the T.S. Eliot poem, that really gets on this, you know, that perfect contemplation would be just completely in the moment with God, and he kind of, the poem, the stand is about how we're not there, <laughs> but that's how I look at all this. I, uh, Tim and Karen Schmidt's son, their eldest son, has come back to Christ. And it's, it's like it's like everything he learned throughout his whole life now is <laughs> kind of lit up. It's really it's, it's really delightful to see. He had all of this, but he didn't see it. And all of a sudden, right. Yes. Oh, um, Lent is the season historically that um, that prepares for Easter. It's the fast, and churches that um, churches that. Um, Don't have, you know, don't, some churches don't observe seasons really at all. They're just kind of, you call mostly their evangelical churches, don't really by seasons, don't really have liturgy, don't really have sacraments. 
live, don't really live in the sense of, of Christian time in the calendar of the year and their way of observing. And so,